This podcast was recorded live at RBC Waterpark Place. Good morning. Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. It's my privilege to host our ongoing conversation about innovation, disruption, and how technology is changing everything around us. And I'm thrilled this morning that we're joined by an amazing Canadian entrepreneur, uh, Brian Scudamore. Brian, welcome to uh, RBC Disruptors. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you. He's kind of succeeded by failing. But that's our conversation today, based a bit on Brian's amazing book, Willing to Fail, WTF. stands for <laughs> Willing to Fail. Brian's going to talk about the failure mindset. He built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, an incredible story. We'll get into uh, that. But he's also building a remarkable organization called OTE, uh, Ordinary to Exceptional, uh, which is partnering with uh, RBC Ventures. So we'll hear a bit more uh, about that. But Brian, I wonder if we can kick it off as we like to do with a, a few snappers just to get you uh, talking. So I'm gonna rapid fire Brian here with some questions about the junk business, taking you back to the origins of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Awesome. Number one, oddest piece of junk you've ever collected? Oddest piece, uh, it was interactive junk. We took away a truckload of escargot shells and the customer uh, said, you know, you can squeeze more in there. So we jumped out of the second story of their office into the shells, compacted them down and filled up another load. Most valuable piece of junk? Most valuable piece of junk, $400,000 in cash. Uh, true story, in Vancouver there was a home that uh, was being renovated and the guys were in there pulling up the floorboards, which was part of the job, and they saw some bills and their eyes lit up and the customer's eyes lit up and they started ripping up more floorboards, $400,000, which was hidden away in the 30s apparently. They were 1932 circa bills. And, and valued at $5.3 million when it was hidden away. So no one ever found out why that money was there. Yeah, who who uh, got the, guys, the money? Well, the customer had a cheaper renovation by 400, <laughs> uh, actually by $399,000. They gave a $1,000 tip to the guys. Great. Yeah. Uh, most embarrassing junk story? Most embarrassing? Oh, this is on Facebook Live. So true story, I wasn't there. A customer uh, was paying the bill and they said, Come on up, guys. I'm not able to. I'm not able to, to to come downstairs. And the guys went up, and this customer was naked on the bed. And they said, "Okay, I think we're gonna not charge you." And they left. <laughs> so okay, we'll end the story right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is on Facebook. Exactly. That's, that's, that's great. Um, I told you I didn't want the questions yeah. <laughs> in advance, just so that they could be real. But there those, we go. those are real. Ask yeah. go four hundred grand and uh, naked a, a, a naked yeah. customer. Yeah. When did you realize you were an entrepreneur? I think I realized I was an entrepreneur at a really young age. I mean, there's the nature versus nurture discussion. I have young kids, and I think one of them is going to be an entrepreneur, even though I've never asked her what she wants to do in her life. I just want her to be happy. But at a young age... What, what I, does she signal that makes you think she's an entrepreneur? A little bit of similarities to me. ADD, high energy, a little bit crazy, ups and downs, big ideas, trouble focusing, that kind of thing. Um, Hopefully she's not watching this on Facebook <laughs> Live, but I love her to death. So, you know, I think at a young age, I found I was always a bad kid in high school. I was a disruptor before the word became maybe a cool word. I saw in every report card that I uh, had as a kid where it said, you know, if Brian could only focus, you know, if he could only stop disrupting his friends in the class. And I think I realized something different about me at that early age. 
But I think the entrepreneurial bug I realized when I used to work at my grandparents' army surplus store in San Francisco in the game of business. What should we all look for in ourselves to know what level of entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial zeal we've got? I don't think everybody's destined to be an entrepreneur, and I think that's okay. I think that some people want to start things. Some people want to join and help build things. Um, I wouldn't want everyone in my company to want to be an entrepreneur. I want people, you know, I've got Eric Church, who's our COO, who's based here in Toronto and commutes every week to Vancouver. Don't know how he does it, but it's been seven years and it's amazing. He's the executor behind what we're doing. I got the company to 100 million and Eric was able to help us get to, we're trending this year to 444 million in revenue. I couldn't have done that without an executor. So if Eric was a, an entrepreneur, that would be a challenge. I had an entrepreneur-type partner, Cameron Harold, in the earlier days, and we grew the company together from $2 million to $106 million. I was the best man in his wedding, great friends. Had to get Cameron out of the business, unfortunately, because we were too entrepreneurial, and together we were this fire-ready-aim type, mm. and it was a bit of a disaster in the end. You know, We got along. We're still actually great friends today but I had to get him out of the business because it needed the rigor and the discipline that someone like an Eric brought to the company. So I, I want to come back to that, uh, that story because it's so important for its insights on, on, on failure, but maybe you can give us a bit of background on the, the origins of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, how, how the company was born. Yeah, I was 18 years old. I was in a McDonald's drive through of all places. I was one course short of graduating from high school and my parents felt really proud about that and they were not going to fund my college education. And the only reason I wanted to go to college was fear of missing out. All my buddies were going to college, every single one of them. And I thought, you know, what am I gonna do next year? So I, I came up with a way to pay for college. And that was being in that McDonald's drive-through, saw this pickup with plywood sides in front of me. It was very serendipitous. Got out there and bought a truck, started a company called The Rubbish Boys. It was just me, but I wanted to sound bigger. <laughs> and started hauling junk, 700 on a truck, 300 on flyers and business cards, my life savings. And that summer I got enough money to fund my education. But ironically, my education is what inspired me to drop out. I was learning more about business, running a business, more than studying in school. So with one year left in my university education, I said to my dad, Dad, I got some great news for you. And my dad's a liver transplant surgeon. He's done more schooling than anybody I've ever met. And I asked him to sit down and shared the good news. And I said, I'm dropping out of school to do this full time. And he said, you're dropping out of university to become a full-time junk man? <laughs> how is that good news? And I said, look at how much I'm learning about business. School will be there. If I choose to go back to UBC in five years, it'll be there, I promise. My business opportunity might not be. And I had to take the, take the leap. So one of your big, uh, first big breaks came when the local newspaper in Vancouver profiled you. And they did that because you called them up and pitched your, uh, pitched your story. And as I've read about your life story, you've always been great at finding those moments. It takes a bit of brashness to kind of put your name out there, put the company's name out there. And I'm curious when you reflect on that, how important that kind of chutzpah and brashness is to entrepreneurs to just be willing to go out and do that crazy stuff. Yeah, so I think, again, the, the title of the book, that whole WTF, willing to fail moment, I wrote the book and the title came at the end. So my co-author, Roy Williams, said, let's just get the book out there. Don't worry about the title. We had a working title, which was terrible. So bad, I'm not going to share it. But at the end of the book, the title did pop out. This WTF, willing to fail attitude was so prevalent in my life that I said, that's got to be the title. And what I learned is 
willing to fail, if you've got that attitude that I've got nothing to lose, you get out there and you ask, you have the boldness and the brashness to just try new things. So I picked up the phone and called the press at the Vancouver province. And I said to them in, the, in my optimistic, energetic tone, I said, I got an awesome story for you. And they said, okay, tell us what it is. And that within uh, you know, a few hours, they'd sent a photographer. We were on the front page of the province, this massive ad for free with our phone number, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, or it was 738-JUNK at the time when we were a smaller company. But I had nothing to lose. You never know what you'll get unless you ask. And so op opportunity is always there. I think what entrepreneurs do well is having the boldness and the courage to just speak up and ask. You just don't know what you'll get. Yeah, that's a great insight. I, I got to do a conversation like this years ago with Richard Branson, and someone in the audience was an entrepreneur, and they, they said, hey, I'm, an I'm running a small business. How do I get noticed? Yeah. And Branson, don't do this, please, takes the glass of water and throws it at me. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. It was a Branson moment. <laughs> I was like, he's the dude. Yeah, so, How but, but, but uh, don't do it. Well, it, it uh, <laughs> So you it, sat it there with the whole rest of the he he, he he aimed well enough to, to miss a good okay. chunk of uh, okay. my body, but he, uh, he made the point. Um, tell us a bit about the, uh, your, your decision to franchise, because that was uh, critical to, to your expansion. Curious in hindsight, if you feel that was the right decision. Yeah, it was absolutely the right decision. It aligned with what drove me as an entrepreneur, is building something much bigger and better together. I love building things with people. We're a very social business. Anyone that would ever come to the junction, and if you're ever in Vancouver, email and come for a visit. The, the junction is this open office and energetic environment. And you can just feel when you walk through an electricity and energy that, wow, this is a team building something together. So franchising, I didn't want to be the guy to build it and make it just about me and not have these friends and this business family to grow it with. And so franchising was the ultimate sort of distribution of ownership type model. I'd always loved McDonald's, not necessarily the, the food, but the, the, the model that Ray Kroc built yeah. of having owners and investors who had skin in the game. I thought that was great. So why not build this cookie cutter type franchise where you could take any one of our businesses, a Shack Shine, for example, or a Wow One Day Painting, and go start in any market and follow our recipe in order to be successful. Tell us about, uh, a bit about building teams and culture, because that's certainly a, a lot of your experience with failure mm -hmm. came in terms of coming to grips with people you were very close to, as you said, uh, but you got to let them go or move, mm -hmm. uh, move on. Walk us through a couple of those experiences and what you learned about failure and about yourself. Yeah, so culture. I learned how to create a company that's all about people and building the right culture by having a massive failure. So when I talk about being grateful for failure, I truly mean it. My company would not be the $400 plus million business with the culture and the vibe we've got if I didn't mess up so bad back in 1994. So five years into the business, I had 11 employees, and they say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I had nine bad apples. Uh, I sat down with all 11 people and brought them into the office for a morning meeting and said, guys, I, I, I'm sorry. First two words out of my mouth, but... I'm sorry, this isn't working out, and I've got to let everybody go. I realized I did not have the right people. I didn't train them, give them the love, the support they needed to be successful, and I made a tough decision. You know, I had a company of 12 that went down to a company of one, just me. I had a half a million in revenue, five trucks, 
down to now one truck because it's mm -hmm. all I could drive at once. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try and rebuild this if I can. The odds were against me that I could because I was losing customers. I just couldn't keep up with the business that was there. But why I am grateful for that tough time is it taught me rebuild by finding the right people. And so building a great culture, how do you do that? To me, it's hire people that you want to be friends with. Mm. And they say don't mix business and pleasure, but you know, find people you enjoy that, you're in, that are interesting, interested, that you've got a shared passion for growth, whatever it is. So I got out there and I started recruiting fun people who I'd love to have a beer with, who were very uh, clean cut, professional, and fit the image of what we wanted to build. And it revolutionized the direction of where we were going. What did you learn about yourself through that process and how did you change? I learned that I was a terrible leader. Um, I really was. I mean, I was, I was hiding in my private office. So today we don't have private offices, not for myself or Eric or anybody. And I was hiding behind a private office door and not spending time with my team. I didn't want to. I didn't enjoy them. And I was scared of them and the, the conflict. and the, It just wasn't what I had envisioned building a business. I've always been, you and I talked about this in the, the green room, that you know, to me, I'm not a money-motivated guy. I'm a growth-motivated person. I love watching people grow, opportunity grow, and building something bigger and better together these weren't the people that I wanted to build something together with. So I learned leadership is about being out front. Leadership is leading by example. Leadership is giving care and attention and love to your people and helping them be better people. And I wasn't doing any of that. So it was the ultimate leadership lesson for me. And it took a good couple of years before I started to truly understand how to make progress in that direction. You talk a lot in the book about the, the importance of mentorship. At that stage of... Uh of your life and your career, did you have adequate men mentorship? And what, in, in hindsight, would you have benefited from? Yeah, I didn't have a lot of mentorship at that time. My mentorship was just, I think, in my personality. And we talked about, you know, one of my one of my children and why I think that she might be an entrepreneur is curiosity. Mm. I've always been curious, and I've always asked people questions. They say that quote that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I fortunately am. am uh, I'm always in the right room because I've always been surrounded by people that I know are smarter and always digging and asking questions and being curious. So I started to realize that why, why reinvent anything? Why not just take shortcuts? So when I wanted to franchise the business, I got out there and I picked up the phone and I started calling. I, I, I met with about a dozen people and just said, I want to pick your brains on franchising. You've been a part of McDonald's or you've done something great in the franchise world. I want to understand what you think the possibility of, of this business could be with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And 100% of these 12 people said it can't be franchised. They all told me, you can't franchise it, it's not franchisable, here's why. And the mentorship that I got out of them was, I got their opinion saying it can't be done, but I kept saying, why not? What's missing? What could make it franchisable? So I took those opportunities, those no's that can't be franchised, to ask questions, to uncover well, what, what could I change? And then I went and completely tweaked the model. I built a national brand. I created a national phone number. I created a call center where we do the booking and dispatch. So I created something where it made more sense for people to be a part of something bigger versus going at it alone. The, uh, the, the phone number story is great. Maybe you can uh, walk us through that, how you got the 1-800 the number. Yeah, so I, I very much, uh, again, not being afraid of failure. And maybe when, at, at the time when I had this phone number, 
I didn't really understand that WTF attitude. I hadn't created a, a name for it. But again, you just not, not ever wanting to give up if you really see something clearly in your brain. I had a vision for this phone number. We were brainstorming, so we were 738 junk. We knew that we wanted to expand outside of Vancouver. How were we going to come up with a brand that could grow and expand? So we came up with this idea of let's do an 800 number. And we said 738 junk, well, what, what would work? And we played with, there was a Got Milk ad campaign years ago in the US, and we said 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So excited. I mean, I was jumping up and down, doing cartwheels. I was just like, this is amazing. And I picked up the phone and called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And it said the number was not available in your area. So I'm like, great, the number's available. And I called all the different phone companies, AT&T and Sprint, and I tried to find out who owned this phone number. It wasn't available in any area that I knew somebody in the US, in Canada. I finally uh, tracked down that it was only available in Idaho. It was owned by government, so I'm not getting this phone number. Um, and I finally reached the phone room of the Department of Transportation in Idaho. And there's this guy, Michael. And I said, hey, Michael, uh, you work in the phone room. I mean, I figured out, you know, there must be, if you're in government, they must have a big enough department that manages all the phone lines. And after three phone calls, he's like, I don't know why you want this phone number so bad, but here I'm going to fax over the AT&T forms, and it's yours. So 59 no's. I mean, I was tracking them on paper. The 60th phone call, I get the phone number. It's mine. Two days later, I get in touch with Michael and, and you know, want to send him and his team or whoever out for dinner. He's no longer with the company. I have no idea what was going on there, if that was his parting gift to me, and I got the number, and it was all legit. And the attorney general from the state of Idaho has never contacted Nobody, you saying, I, I got it legitimately. We want our number back. It was an honest transaction. Uh, got the number for free. But the most interesting part of that story in looking back that I think is I believed wholeheartedly I was going to get that phone number. One triple eight got junk was available. Uh, the guy wanted 100 grand for it. That wasn't going to happen. And I was really focused on the 1-800. So I went out and hired a design firm. And I got them to design the logo that it is today, the blue and green 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I had a designed logo before I had even had any indication I was going to get the phone number because that's how much I believed that I had to have the vision in front of me that I could see and I knew we would get that number and then ultimately made it happen. That, uh, that, you know, we talk a lot about resilience and that's, uh, that's a great example of resilience, making, you know, getting no... 59 times, but the 60th time you get it because you, you saw the outcome. You were going to get there. It's the same with your determination to get on Oprah. You knew that would happen, even if she had never heard of you. Maybe you can give us an insight on how, yeah, you, uh, you, know, what's how you pulled that off. Yeah, well, what's interesting about the Oprah story is that was another leadership moment for me to realize to grow and scale a business, you can't be the entrepreneur that does everything. It just, you can't grow beyond, you know, say, a million dollars in revenue. And so I said, okay, what, what's my vision of some big things I'd love to see happen in the business? We had a massive wall the size of this curtain in our office and it had nothing on it. And I got some uh, decals made and I said, can you imagine? And we put this big, can you imagine decal on the wall and people would walk past it and they'd say, what is that? And I said, well, I want to inspire others to think about vision, what visions they have for things they wanna see happen in the business. So a couple weeks later, I put a decal on there that said, so can you imagine being featured on the Oprah Winfrey show, Brian Scudamore? I got other people to think big, bold ideas over time that they would put up on that same wall with their name below it as their commitment to make something happen. So we had this guy, Tyler Wright, who was our first PR hire. 
He had zero PR experience, but he had all the drive and ambition to pick up the phone, make calls, and pitch the press. And he used to sometimes go sit beneath that wall and look up at this, can you imagine being featured on Oprah? And he's like, yeah, I got this, I got this. 14 months later, now he was doing other things, not just focused on this obsession, but he got out there and he stands up one day in our open office environment. He's like, I did it, I did it, we got it. And I'm just, what's going on? I mean, the whole office can hear him. He's like, Oprah. And so what the leadership lesson for me was, I did nothing to make that happen other than putting a decal on the wall, giving leadership to here's the idea we'd love to see happen. Tyler got out there and did all the work to pull it together. So you can inspire people with ideas and they can inspire the rest of the company with ideas. And then it's the execution of building something bigger and better together. I love that, the imagination wall. What did Tyler do to uh, pull it off? He just, it was persistent. He just kept pushing and emailing Harpo Studios and calling. We were in the USA Today, a hit that he got, and they mentioned ourselves in the article and they mentioned our competitor, Trash Busters. And Oprah had a, a hoarder, that uh, hoarder situation they were dealing with, and their producers had reached out. They read this article in USA Today. Thank goodness they called us and not Trash Busters. But I think the reason they called us is clearly Tyler had done so much work to be on their radar. It was, uh, it was like magic. But again, having a vision, having a dream, and being clear to the world what you want to do and, and, and your world as a team, that's how you make magic happen. It reminds me of this great scene in uh, Dumb and Dumber, fantastic movie. My business uh, reminds you of Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, your, your, your determination when, when, when the Jim Carrey character is asking, you know, do I stand a one in a hundred chance of getting a date with you? Oh, no. that's awesome. One in a thousand, no. One in a million. And she says, yes, is what you're saying is I, have a, I stand a chance, yeah. which is the entrepreneur's mindset. Give so me a true. one in a million chance. Yeah. That's okay, I, I've yeah. got a chance. Tell us a bit about scaling, because this is maybe the most important decision for any entrepreneur. When and how do you scale? You had success with it, but lots have, uh, lots have failure. Mm -hmm. When you look back on the approach to scaling uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, would you have done it differently in any way? So two things. Number one, would I have done it differently? Absolutely not. And I know it might sound cliche, but every single mistake we made, we had to make to get to that next level. You know, you and I talked in the green room about Airbnb, and I heard uh, Joe Gebbia, one of the founders, speak. Their business model was to rent air mattresses to people at the Democratic National Convention in the States. And uh, people were literally renting these air mattresses in, in very few numbers because it was a stupid idea. But what it taught them is, how do we iterate this and how do we take this to the next level? And they've created the largest hotel chain in the world. It's, I think, a, um, the number one thing I've ever done towards scaling is this. I, eight years into the business, I joined the entrepreneur organization and we talked about mentorship and I probably went on a different tangent, but we talked about mentorship and I joined EO. At a million dollars in revenue, you were allowed to join this organization, and I started to learn from others, which was unbelievable. But the bad thing, the mistake I made, was I started comparing myself to others. I started looking at people with $10 million businesses and $100 million businesses and things that were way more glamorous than junk removal, and I said, I feel like crap. And so one of the things they teach you in EO when you're trying to solve a creative problem is go take a retreat. So I retreated to my parents' summer cottage took out a sheet of paper and I said, okay, I'm an optimistic guy, stop being so pessimistic, don't go down the doom loop and start to think about what the pure possibility could look like of my million dollar business and my future. 
So I wrote out things like we'd be on the Oprah Winfrey show, we'd be the FedEx of junk removal, we'd be uh, in the top 30 metros in North America because there were 30 cities bigger than Vancouver where we started. And I wrote this picture sitting on this dock and I remember this two-page document. I started to look at it and realize this is an amazing picture that is not just a dream. I can actually see it and I'm going to use this document to rally people towards my vision. So when we talk about scaling, uh, closing the question, scaling to me is first, what does it look like? Where are you going as a destination? Don't as an entrepreneur get bogged down in the how. Just think, what does the picture look like? Top 30 metros, Oprah, FedEx, a junk removal. I'd share the document with people, friends, family, and so on. My employees would look at this and it put people in one of two camps. One camp that says, Brian, you're smoking hope dope here. There's just no way you're, you're nuts. And the other group that said, wow, this is unbelievable. I can see what you see and I want to be a part. So scaling is first going, what does it look like? And then rally a team of people that are so fired up as much as you are that they'll help you. And when you started to talk to your team about this and you discovered there's the, the, the naysayers and the enthusiasts, do you get rid of the naysayers or do you need them around to uh, keep you honest? The naysayers got rid of themselves. They, you know, I ran into a guy at a, at a gas station years later, this guy, Mike Ryan, and he comes up to me, he goes, Brian, you did it. I'm like, who are you? And he goes, Mike Ryan, I used to work in your call center. And he goes, you did it. You got the top 30 metros. He goes, I remember when you shared that and started talking about it. I was one of the guys that said, there's just no way. And I left. And he's a great guy and he's successful, but he didn't see what we saw and went to do something somewhere else. Um, how big is 1-800-GOT-JUNK today? 370 million. Uh, Canada, US, Australia, about 250 franchise partners. And then the three remaining brands, Wow, One Day Painting, You Move Me, and Shack Shine are growing more quickly than 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which is exciting, taking some of the learning, and we're still making failures in each one of them. Um, but it's fun to watch them all as almost like children yeah. grow and blossom at different levels. So, the, so tell us about OTE, Ordinary to Exceptional. What, what inspired you to do that rather than just keep, uh, keep focus on uh, GOT-JUNK? Yeah, so I am ADD. I love to do new things and have new ideas. It was an incubator of other home service brands. Our mission is to build the most trusted brands in home services. And so why, one exceptional experience at a time. Why not take, if we do junk removal, someone's moving. Someone has to paint. Someone has to get their windows and gutters done. I mean, they all just fit nicely together using our call center, our booking and dispatch systems. It's great. So what inspired me was just the desire to want to do something more. I love watching people grow. So having entrepreneurial owners come in and get a franchise has been unbelievable. And it was really just, I think as entrepreneurs, you get addicted to growth. Mm. I'm not a money grow, you know, so when we talk about money and I say 370 million, it's not to try and brag or any, it's trying to show the size and scope of what we've created. It took eight years to get to a million in revenue, which is really freaking slow. Uh, it, we do a million on a given day now because we've built this engine that's building momentum. And, um, you know, I even think of failure. One thing I've heard recently is people go, oh, Brian, you know, failure, gee, it's so easy to talk about now that you're at 400 million in revenue. It's like, no, we wouldn't have gotten there if we didn't fail. It's like steps. You fail, you learn from that failure, and you get to the next step. We would never have gotten to where we are today, and we'll never get to be a billion-dollar company if we don't continue to have the courage to make mistakes, and then learn from every single one of those. Do you have work organized conversations about failure with your team? Do you get together once a, 
in a while and say, let's talk about how we messed up? Yeah, so Eric Church, our COO, wants to uh, build a WTF wall okay. and wants to, like the Can You Imagine wall, have a wall of failure and put all these little decals up there of the learnings to celebrate failure. So it, for us, I think, you know, it's a culture of what did we learn? What did we learn from this? My oldest daughter is ski racing this year. She's 14. And so she started U16 with the Whistler Mountain Ski Club. It's late to start racing, but she wanted to do it. And she started making all these mistakes in the beginning. It was hard on her ego. And I'm like, that's awesome. You got on the wrong skis and fell out because they were someone else's bindings going down that race. You'll never do that again, right? And she's actually turning out to be really good because she is, I think, I hope, understanding that every failure is a chance to learn. You can beat yourself up and go, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I do this? Why did that happen? Or you can look and go, so when I'm in a failure today, if something bad happens, the number one question I ask myself, and I do it every single time, and it works without failure, is I take out a sheet of paper and I say, what's the one positive thing that can happen from this seemingly challenging situation? And I often end up with a big list. And I'm just like, wow, nice failure. What, uh, what's the biggest failure so far with OTE? I think the biggest failure for me, the, the darkest day in, in my life, my, you know, we talk about 30 years of failure in that book. The hardest time was when I, I got Cameron out as my best friend. That was tough, but we've repaired that friendship. And he'd say to you as well, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. But I brought in the next leader and I recruited like crazy. And I found a person who was an ex-Starbucks president in the US, wanted to move back to Canada to run my little business. And we almost bankrupted the business together in a little over a year. Financial meltdown didn't help in 2007 and 8, but that wasn't the reason. The reason was I had one person who was very smart, but the wrong leader for me. Didn't see value in me as an entrepreneur, as a quirky ADD type that just didn't see the value. And we gradually, day by day, got further apart with the vision and the execution. And getting that person out, why it was the biggest mistake, I recruited the wrong person, so clearly that was a challenge. But I went into depression and just had this horrible, horrible time because every franchise partner and everyone in my company thought I was an absolute idiot for making that decision to get that person out. They'll tell you now that it was the best decision ever, but as an entrepreneur, you've got to have the courage to put everything on the line and make the right decision. The right decision usually isn't the easy decision, but I made a very tough decision and suffered personally as a result until, and we, we laid off 52 people, I had to get rid of that person's whole team, I mean it was a nightmare. But because it was the wrong person, I knew ultimately it would take us down a disastrous, disastrous path, and so it was time to start again. So we, we were talking a lot about failure, and just the mention of that word makes a lot of people uncomfortable. How do you get people in your world comfortable with the F word? Yeah, it's, you know, failure is, Failure should be your friend. You know, I think the most successful people in the world, I've never known anybody to build a business and that, that you look at in the public eye and say, wow, that's really successful without a lot of failure. Um, if we succeed without failure, I think it's a hollow victory. We feel like we haven't earned it. But imagine the stories that you can tell when you've got that, that you know, stories of, uh, of disappointment and regret, the longing, the refusing to give up, even when giving up felt like the best option in front of you, that's the kind of success that feels good. So embrace failure and just understand that failure doesn't mean you effed up and you're a terrible person. It means that 
you've got an opportunity, the teacher's in front of you, you as a student are ready, take the learning and, and say, what can you do better? I mean, the Airbnb guys, that's a classic example. They could have just given up. Yeah. But imagine if they did. I want to um, ask, ask you, Brian, one last question from your, your, your book, and it's from the last page, where it's your story. And you say, from this day on, your future is a blank slate. What's the story you'll be telling? I'm curious how your story is going to uh, be told going forward. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. In my business today, at the size we're at, you know, people will often say, you know, look what you've built. Do you ever look back and say, you know, look what you've built? And I say, I don't because I built very little. I, I started the seedling of the idea, but it's grown into this big oak tree because of all these amazing people that were building this together. So I find it very difficult to take any sort of like, what is my story looking forward? It, it's what's our story. What does O2E brands, any of our brands look like going forward? It's really just a passionate place filled with great culture, with a bunch of people that are building uh, their dreams. So what do, you, what do you have on the imagination wall for OTE? You know, so we want to build a billion dollar business, not because of money again, but the size and scope. And we see 10 brands at some point. Uh, we're by no means ready for, for another brand. Uh, we got our, our hands full, but it's just continuing. It, it really is that uh, most trusted brands and home services. I mean, we love what we do each and every day. And it's just an exciting journey. I, you know, I said to you, I would never sell the company or take it public. Like, why would you sell off a child? You know, we also talked about, <laughs> we, we both related with some days, it depends, um, some, some children. But again, I hope they're not listening. Like, you guys? But it really is, I, I, I couldn't sell this because it's just too much fun. And even the dark days, it's still been you persevere and you get through it to a place where you just feel so grateful for the exciting uh, ride that we've got. It's such a great story, it's so inspiring, and it's, uh, it's just beginning. So thank you for sharing that with us, Brian, yeah. for today's conversation. Thank you. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Vocal Fry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.